Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Greg Bottle joining us, BMP Paribas. Thrilled that he could be with us uh, today. And the, one of the reasons is you have a house cautious call in the American economy. Let's start with that. Why are you cautious where others see above 2% growth? Well, I think what the market is looking for generally is this um, weakness that we've seen in the manufacturing side of the economy uh, start to mean revert. And the, the rest of the economy, the service side, the consumer that has been much more robust, just kind of continue on track. We think what we're actually likely to see is mm-hmm. this weakness from the manufacturing side of the economy start to broaden out a little bit to the rest of the economy. We're not looking for a recession. Oh. But we are looking for more of a pronounced slowdown than the market is looking for. They don't do this till CFA 5, you know, in terms of exam. <laughs> but let me ask the CFA f- uh, 5 question. Caution, gloomy. It's not morning in America. Why are stocks going up? Why are stocks going up? Well, I think what the market is doing is looking through the short-term weakness and is very much expecting a recovery next year. And we had a very difficult year this year for earnings. S&P has rallied 25% this year, and we've had earnings growth of only 1%. If you X out the effect of buybacks, it's actually been negative earnings growth. So why is the market able to look through that? Because it's expecting a sharp rebound next year, particularly from some of those stocks that have underperformed, the energy, industrials, materials names. You know, the market's looking for very strong earnings growth there. We think that's a view that's going to get challenged through Q1 if we don't see a, a, a decent rebound in the data. And I think you will start to see downgrades come through to those 2020 earnings expectations. And the market at these lofty levels, I think, could struggle to digest that. So, Greg, I want to talk about valuation. We've had a 25% rise in the S&P 500 in, in 2019, yet we've had essentially, as you just mentioned, effectively no earnings growth. Where are we in terms of valuation? It looks expensive. It looks expensive. Um, yeah. I think if you look at, for example, growth stocks, um, a one-year forward PE for growth stocks is at highs for the last 30 years, X the TMT bubble. So there's an argument that in this environment of extremely easy monetary policy, low rates, that there should be a valuation premium. But the question is, how much is too much? And to me, it looks overextended. So you bring up the good point, which is, you know, I'm looking at the uh, tenure here, 1.75%. I've got no choice. I got to go buy stocks. I'm just going to go buy Jeff Bezos, right? Well, I think that's what's been driving the market this year. And I think as long as earnings growth is positive, even if it's low positive, that type of um, attitude can can play out. But the issue is if you start to see stocks um, under pressure, if you start to see earnings contract, then it becomes much more challenging. It is a much more risky asset class. All right. So if I'm thinking about equities here, there's you know, a lot of I'll probably have half the people that walk in this studio um, talk about defensive, get defensive, get defensive. But those are expensive. And the other half will come in and say, no, 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 there's no recession in sight. Go cyclicals. Where do you fall? I would rather fall in the more defensive camp. But I do think you have to be careful about that. Some of the classic defensive sectors, such as the healthcare sector, um, is potentially subject to a huge amount of political risk right. next year. So I think it's very difficult to find good value defensive stocks. I think sectors such as the consumer staples, I think would weather a downturn better than some others. You do derivatives as well, Greg Bottle. Explain to us the convexity right now. That's the bet within the market. And when it unwinds, it goes faster. How big is the bet right now in the market? Is there the proverbial sidelines crowded? Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've seen this week is that the VIX has broken down through the 12 level. What's that mean? So it means that the expectations for future volatility are very low. 
And we've seen the short interest in terms of the VIX futures. So the number of people betting on that basically continuing to remain People low. are betting that it will be a quiet bull market. Exactly. So there's a, there's a larger outstanding short position on the VIX than there, than there has been in, in, in recent history. So yeah, there's basically a bet that we're going to remain in this very low volatility risk on environment. And that creates um, potentially a fiercer reaction if you do get a catalyst to break us out of that. All right, so it seems to me we are just one tweet away from this trade deal just going poof. What would that mean for oh, the market? Oh, come on. It's a Wednesday <laughs> before things. Yeah, I, I, sh- I should have taken us there. But what could happen in that scenario? Is that a, is still a risk to the market? Or is the market kind of looking past trade? The market's looking past trade, which is exactly why it is a risk. I think right. the market is very much pricing in the idea that this phase one deal, this ceasefire is going to get done. I think everyone accepts there are challenges further down the road. But in the short term, I think everyone I speak to expects these December deadline to pass without any further increase in tariffs and that we reach a phase one deal. So really for markets, the risks mm-hmm. are if we don't, then that could, have a, that could have a significant impact. What is the segmentation that I can take advantage of? Is it mid-cap, small-cap, large-cap? Is it U.S. international? Is it, you know, the 12 stocks that are going up versus value line geometric going nowhere? What's the partition that is an opportunity? Well, I think it depends on your view. If you buy into the idea that we are going to have a cyclical recovery, then I think those stocks that have lagged, whether it's energy, industrials, the smaller mid caps in particular, do look potentially interesting. Um, The Russell broke out through the top end of its trading range last week. So if you buy into that narrative, I think the smaller mid caps could rally into the back end of the year. I think if you're worried a lot about trade, if you're worried about the U.S. elections next year, then I do think you have to be more cautious about the Nasdaq, some of the FANG names. As I mentioned earlier, valuations for the growth stocks are extremely elevated. And typically, it is the Nasdaq that has been more volatile around trade headlines and I think could be far more impacted by the politics next year. Tom mentioned that the, the FANG stocks. I mean, they've been. are you concerned that the breadth of the market advance this year maybe isn't as healthy as we've seen in some other advances? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. I think there's been kind of a relatively narrow subsection of the market that's been driving growth. And that very much reflects this dislocation we've seen between the manufacturing side of the economy and the service side of the economy. So absolutely, it has been a very narrow rally and that raises the risks. Greg Bottle, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With thank BNP you. Paribas with equities and derivatives there and a cautious uh, GDP view as well. Andrew Hollenhurst here. Andrew, uh, the, the, the the zeitgeist is, okay, maybe it's a bottom and up. And, of course, Chairman Powell talking about a glass more than a half full. Is that what you see? You know, it's looked a lot like a glass exactly half full. And we're starting to get some of this hard data in that's looking a little bit more positive. So we've seen some positive signs on the soft data. And I would say data out this morning, you're seeing better investment in GDP. You're seeing better signs of future investment in durables. And that's really where you want to see the strength in an area that's been weak for quite some time. With that tone, do yields as a general framework stay lower? Or is the huge surprise of Q1 2020 up, up, we go finally in yields? That, that that would be the huge surprise. I think that's what no one is expecting. Yeah. And, and and I think, you know, if you were listening to Governor Brainerd yesterday, for instance. What'd she say? I missed that. 
she was talking about the potential to move to an average inflation targeting regime. Um, so this is still a Fed that even if they see strong activity, you need to see something on the inflation front to get them thinking about hikes. So I think that's where we have this scenario where it is looking a little bit better. Equities are moving higher, um, but rates are staying fairly low. So, Andrew, looking at the data that came out this morning, you know, U.S. business equipment demand increases by the most since January. You know, and that's kind of counter to the narrative that we've been having, you know, contracting manufacturing, weak business investment. Is this the beginning of a turn, do you think, or is this not so much of a trend at this point? It's probably too early to call it a trend. I mean, we're really looking at one month of data. Like I was saying, you you do have some of these leading indicators. Globally, PMIs for manufacturing are turning up. They're still at low levels, but they look like they're coming off of a bottom. So that's what we're hoping for. That's what we think we're going to see. And and the other thing that's going on in the U.S. is you had this auto worker strike, which was a drag, and probably even a drag in these numbers that still look pretty positive. That's going to bounce back. Um, We know that we had aircraft production that was shut down. That's going to bounce back right. also. So you have a couple of idiosyncratic factors in there also that coming into the first half of 2020, these numbers could look a little more positive. So I, I think that's yeah. what's going to happen. Do I see it in the data yet? I'm, I'm not sure that we're seeing it that clearly. In the data Andrew, yet. wonderful to see Chairman Greenspan, on, I think with Maria yesterday. And, you know, I, I look at Chairman Greenspan and his economic mandate is a good stock market builds confidence. Is that still true? Or is the stock market the province of only the elite? Well, it is true that the gains from the stock market are not that broadly shared across the economy. This this really is high-income, high-wealth individuals that have exposure to the stock market. But when we look at those consumer sentiment measures, and even when you break those consumer sentiment measures down across income groups, um, across demographics, you still see this... <clears throat> pass through from higher equity prices um, to what's going on more broadly with consumer yeah. sentiment. So those two things, are they are linked. Um, whether fundamentally or not, they, they should be. Yeah. They do seem to be quite linked empirically. Um, and so as we see equities moving higher, right. um, you know, we think that should be positive for consumer sentiment. Surprising then that you know conference board consumer sentiment has actually stayed a little bit lower here. So we're watching that to see if that bounces. Yeah. Um, but, but in general, that should be a positive backdrop for the economy coming into 2020. Andrew Hollenhorst, thank you so much. Too short of visit. He is with Citigroup working with Catherine Mann uh, on a view on the American economy as well. It is a joy to speak to the gentleman from Pennsylvania and Florida. His name is Mr. Kotak, David Kotak with Cumberland Advisors. David, before we get to your important essay on the poisonous idea of negative interest rates, you have provided national leadership on the challenges to agriculture in China. And this centered around your pioneering bird flu work years ago. Pork is stratospheric in China and has a profound impact. It's not the same as bird flu, but there's a little bit of related biology, microbiology, and virology here. Your thoughts on the durability of this pork crisis for China? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Good morning and happy Thanksgiving. And you just made the case of why Turkey is so important. Um, the, the, The issue of flu is that it mutates. We know that. We saw it from bird flu. We saw it from other viruses. In this case, the shock 
to China is huge. Michael Drury, who tracks those pork prices uh, uh, perfectly in China and has developed a whole price indicator based on what's happening there, describes the shock in the country. It's like the most basic food source has an inflation spike and a shortage. And, of course, it happens in the middle of all the agricultural components of the trade war between the United States and China. So there's a big effect here, too. So, David, just to follow up on that a little bit, is China more susceptible to these types of viruses, whether it's poultry or beef or pork? I don't know whether China is more susceptible. Um, There's medical expertise on that far beyond anything I I hold. Uh, What we do see is we have these originations coming from Asia which affect and have potential to be effective worldwide. And we never know with a virus. The only thing you know about a virus is it will change. So uh, this is a situation which is huge in China, has international effects, and the results are yet to be seen, which is the case with every one of these. So, David, let's switch gears to your recent research note on uh, negative interest rates, um, obviously a significant issue for Germany, for Japan, and some other uh, countries as well. What is your basic thesis about what's going on with some of these markets with negative interest rates and their implications? Yeah, yeah we worked on the paper for a number of months to put together and verify that uh, the thinking was uh, supportable. And essentially, it works like this. If you have positive interest rates, the farther out you go, you have an, a traditional yield curve, one that we're in, usually accustomed to in most countries and certainly the United States. Then the longer out you go, the more you're paid, and therefore you have an incentive for a longer maturity. If you have negative interest rates and the yield curve is increasingly negative as maturity goes out, then the longer out you go, the more you are penalized. And therefore, in a negative interest rate scheme, such as we have in Europe, the incentive is to be very short term because the penalty is lower. In the positive interest rate scheme, such as what we have in the United States, then you're incented to go longer. And the effect of that is to distort forward rates, the notional derivatives of which there are probably 500 trillion worldwide, and ultimately compress yield curves worldwide to be parallel. And in fact, that's what they look like today. What did you learn about extricating ourselves from a negative rate experiment? Well, uh, Madame Lagarde has the most difficult task now. She's a superb politician, and she has all the credentials. And what she has to do is herd the cats into the room and say, look, we're killing our banks. We're killing our insurance companies. We are not getting much growth. There was an ECB economist out today saying we still get some stimulus. Well, I'm not so sure. John Author's column, where he was kind enough to quote my work. But in John Arthur's column on Monday, John, uh, uh, Tom, he, he articulated case after case after case, country after country on the damaging yeah. effects 
of negative rates. I thought Don was marvelous in documenting And Mr. Authors has been on fire, folks, in writing. I mean, he's always good, but he's, he gets these moments, you know. It's <laughs> like the Boston yeah. Bruins. He gets these moments where he just puts it on fire. And you know, Mr. Authors has been lights out. We've tried to effort him. He doesn't do early morning. No. He's and, such a rock star. I think the day starts like at 10 a.m. Sure, why not? That's, yeah. Something like that. David Kotak, have a wonderful Thanksgiving at regards to your family in Florida. Mr. Kotak, of course, is leadership for the years, really in municipal bonds, Uh, the core business, and also, of course, the Cumberland uh, Advisors. Paul Sweeney knows. I mean, you know, he's got the yard out there, the acreage uh, uh, to the west. He's got the John Deere 6080A precision cut real mower. That's Absolutely. You know, it's what you do. You can do the yard in like three swipes, right? Yeah, that's what, that, that, yeah, it gets the job done. It's I like to six on top reels. Of that. So let's go industrial here and talk about the tentativeness of American industry. Why don't you bring in our extinguished guest? <laughs> Karen Ubelhard, Bloomberg Intelligence. She covers all things industrial. You think about the Rust Belt. You think Karen Ubelhardt, she's been doing it uh, for a long time. So let's just start. I, I know we, we talked to your protege, Chris Cialino, earlier in the day about the deer numbers. I'm wondering, and the, the guidance was disappointing. They cited China. Across your universe of industrial companies, agricultural companies, is this issue really coming home to roost, i.e. the trade difficulties with China coming home to hit the farm belt? Uh, the farm belt is one of the areas that has gotten hit the most because um, our big grains are soybeans and corn, and and China buys half of our soybeans, so they've been really whacked. Um, but companies, uh, glo- uh, industrial companies across the board, have seen the impact. A lot of them have big holdings, particularly large companies. Um, 3M is, you know, uh, 11% of sales is in China, so they're seeing it in China too. The, the economic growth slowdown there is hitting them, and it's hitting here as well. The uncertainty is making customers pull back on on some of the long long lead time projects so it it, it has spread and organic growth is uh you know down in just about everything except aerospace so what are the companies that you cover saying again the you know the big industrial companies are they saying we're just trying to cut costs and ride this thing out or is there anything they can particularly do here given the uncertainty i think i think it's the former um a a few of the companies um have been frankly gotten in front of um the slowdown and cut costs pretty dramatically emerson um honeywell some of the others pulled out their quote recession books to um get ready so margins have actually held up pretty well the the volume has not been there um but so far they've been able to deliver on margins i I know you don't do buy hold sell but you mentioned minnesota mining and manufacturing 3m Boy, is this unloved. Two buys, 15 holds, and four say go away. John Inch, uh, Gordon Haskett, hold. Uh, Jeff Sprague at Vertical. He was brilliant on GE. Sergeant Sprague. Hold. Yes, of Sergeant course. Sergeant Sprague. But, but, Karen, when does 3M, do they just slog on, or do they have to do a management revolution at this iconic American company? Uh, you know, they have one, um, they have a big uh, potential legal liability with uh, the chemical PFAS, and that's one of those black hole things that is unmeasurable at this point and okay. people are concerned about. But in addition to that, the new CEO hasn't done a great job of a communicating and b they had some misses um in and he is he's on the road more now he is you see him on tv and radio a lot more now because he's got to tell the story better what's the story 
to a venerable industrial, forget about 3M, an inventor, a venerable industrial company that makes a lot of different things. I mean, that's that's the game. Yes. Is the game over? Uh, you know, it's funny, as you, as you Sid saw in the last two years, right? All these companies are splitting up and they're becoming more focused. Ingersoll next year, Fortive, UTX is uh, splitting out everything. Okay, well, let's take aerospace. Ingersoll Ran. Ingersoll Ran is a hugely venerable name. I remember interviewing their Dynamics CEO 10 years ago. They had 12 divisions and all that. They're it's, just going to be it's HVAC. gone. They're going to they're going to be focused on, um, you know, HVAC and building controls and things like that. Uh, they're getting rid of all their industrial businesses. Um, you know, uh, JCI did the same thing, got rid of all the auto business, all the, the battery business. They're now just building controls. Um, so you're seeing pressure to focus. Emerson is under pressure right is now with mar- an activist well, okay. to do similar things. It, but but this is important, Paul. Is is this the market speaking or hedge fund activists speaking? And does it lead to true shareholder return? I think it's going to be really interesting myself. I feel if when we have our first big bad downturn, all these companies that are now focused are going yeah. to get whacked harder. Paul, exactly where I wanted to go. Yep. She said it better than me. I know. As you look out to 2020, I know you <clears throat> folks in Bloomberg Intelligence do your 2020 outlooks. You think about some of these big industrial companies is when you do your 2020 outlook, are you just like they're they're – Corporate development people saying, tell me what happens in, with China trade and I'll tell you what we're going to do in 2020? Uh, well, you know, it's had an impact, a broader impact on global growth. There are The PMIs for all the major regions are all below 50, except for Brazil, which doesn't really matter that much. So it is broad. Um, Europe is very, very weak. The U.S. is the strongest, but it's now got a, a PMI that, that um, is below yeah, 50. Th- this is critical, what we're talking about. The, the, the modern MBA experiment is a consultant comes in and says, break up your multi-sector conglomerate. And, you know, multis, when I first started doing this, multis got premiums. Uh, GE because, is, yeah, you know, the be- ultimate premium. Because of that stability, because of all the businesses they were in. Now they're saying, yeah, now they're saying, you know, a focus, 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 initially under pressure from activists, right? And in some cases not. But I'm just waiting for the downturn, and then they're going to put okay, them back together so because f- the, the cycles are going to hurt. What does Mr. Culp's Danaher do that the others don't? Because Danaher gets a valuation. Uh, well, at this point, the, like let's say New Danaher without Fortive is very healthcare. So it's got a, you know, so it's focused so it's as well. A, Excuse yeah, me. It's got a I'm stability there. I mean, they've got some other smaller businesses. Paul, I think but... this is a huge issue. It I is. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 like, it's like lemmings over a cliff where there's a strategy Vogue. I'm not. I'm not one to judge the Vogue, but I'm. I'm identifying that there is a Vogue. Yep. Thanks. Yeah. Like remember in the '60s when there was, you know, conglomerates are in, and then in the '80s conglomerates were you out. You were too young to and remember then, that. Well, you mean, <laughs> you're saying spell it. In the Tenico, '80s, I remember. Oh, Ling I know Tenico. Tenico vote. Yep. And, and I, I was the only kid in school that could spell it. Cause I, you know. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's way, it waxes and wanes. And right now it's focus, focus, focus. And, you know, if you're, a, a, you know, in a pure industrial business and you have no place to hide, you know, part of the balance of Honeywell having chemicals and then having aerospace and, you know, um, and then, you know, having their buildings business. They don't all go the same way. Is Honeywell still Honeywell, or are they going to go the, like everybody Honeywell else? Honeywell did their cleanup, I think. Uh, and as as long as performance is great, I think they're okay. You love this industrial stuff, don't you? Yeah. 
I used to live this. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have. I have you know, they they got their pressure. <laughs> they wanted. Remember, they wanted him to split aerospace, and and he he immediately responded to them, and he came out and got rid of his two more cyclical low growth businesses. I've never seen you this fired up. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving. I mean, this is it. Yeah, Deer reporting. It. You got all these big yeah, industrial exciting, companies. Yes. Nobody's talking Uber. Nobody's talking Lyft or WeWork. We're talking Uber's Ingersoll just, Rand. Yeah. Ingersoll Rand. I mean, folks, I hope send us an email. Would you rather listen about Uber and Lyft and all these unicorny <laughs> WeWork and we're industrial? All America. that are Emerson. How's Emerson doing? They've always lagged. Uh, you know, yeah, um, Emerson. You know, they're EMR. in a um, lot of late cycle stuff. You know, their their process businesses. Uh, oh the, come on, uh, they haven't had a fire under them in thirty years. They are have pressure now. De Shaw bought in and want them to there we consider go. splitting up. And that's, okay, that's, we'll see you Friday. Karen Obard, thank you so much. <laughs> Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.